Turn your Bible to Psalms chapter 138 this evening, Psalms 138. You know, I've been praying about revival and for revival, and, and it's weighed heavy on my heart and on my mind. It always does as we're leading into uh, a week of meetings like this. And I've been praying and, and had the thought of revival on my mind. And I asked the Lord, you know, God, I want, I want you to give me a message. I want you to give me something uh, that stir our hearts in preparation for these meetings. Very easy to let these meetings come and go and not see anything happen in our life. In fact, I will tell you that if you don't make a deliberate effort to see God do something in your life over this next week, these meetings will come and go, and nothing will change in your life. I wonder how many times, you know, we all say when we talk about revival, well, revival's more than just a series of meetings. You know, we call it revival, but is it really revival? You know, revival, we can have services, but is it really revival? And I wonder how many times that even those of us, myself included, that say that, we're the culprit. Man, we're the ones that are letting those meetings come and go, and it's entirely up to us if we see God do something in our hearts and minds. So while I would I would agree with anyone that would say, well, preacher, we shouldn't call it revival unless a revival happens. I'd say this, instead of nitpicking what we call it, how about we commit to have revival? Amen. How about we purpose in our hearts that we want to see God do something over this next week? So I said, Lord, I want you to give me a, a sermon on, on revival, and he did. He gave me three different sermons. And I'm going to preach all of them tonight, amen? Psalms 138, don't get nervous. I Really, you know, I say I'm going to preach it, and I am, but I, more than anything, I'm probably just going to exhort you a little bit tonight in the Word of God. Psalms 138, beginning in verse number 1, the Word of God says, I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods, notice that God's little g. Now, the Lord knows there's only one God, but the world doesn't know it. And so he says, before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. In the day when I cried, thou answeredest me and strengthenest me with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise thee, O Lord, when they hear the words of thy mouth. Yea, they shall sing in the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly. But the proud he knoweth afar off. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the works of thine own hands. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here. What a blessing it is to be here. We don't have to wait till Sunday to have revival. God, you can start it in our hearts even this very evening. And that's what we're asking for. That's what we desire tonight, Lord, is that you would start a revival in us, in me tonight, Lord. Not in them, but in me tonight. Start a revival. Lord, do a work. Stir my soul and my heart and my spirit. Do that work that is most necessary in my life, Lord. And I pray that it start even with me. And I pray that your people would pray the exact same way and desire the exact same thing. Lord, I pray that we, we have everything we need tonight. We've got your word, Lord. We've got your Holy Spirit. Uh, we've got your promises. We have everything we need to start tonight. So I pray that you'd start it in our hearts this evening. And may a serious work be done for your glory. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm sure you noticed in verse number 7, the psalmist invokes the topic of revival. He says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, 
thou wilt revive me. And as I began to look at the idea of revival in the Bible, I, I don't really want to give a, a whole symposium on everything that has to do with revival. But I want us to look at three passages tonight, and I want to do my best by the help of the Lord and with the Word of God to answer three questions regarding revival. Now, by way of an introduction, this isn't one of my questions, but I'm sure it's on your mind. Preacher, what is revival? How do we define revival? Well, listen, there's been as many uh, definitions of revival, just about as many as there have been sermons on revival. But I've always liked Vance Havner's definition that revival is God's people falling in love with Jesus all over again. It, when we define the word revival, it means to breathe new life again. And so what are we seeking to revive? Well, we're seeking to revive our spiritual relationship with the Lord. It's more than just uh, breathing life into a place or into a building, but rather it's the people of God having fervor and zeal and devotion and commitment rekindled in their hearts afresh and anew. So what does it look like when revival takes place? Well, I would ask this question. I'd answer it by the Lord's help. What does revival bring to the people of God? What should we be seeking for or what should we expect over this next week if God gives us revival? The psalmist, in talking about his desire from the Lord, he catalogs several things that revival brings. Look at verse number one with me. He says this, I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I'd say number one tonight, what will revival bring? Well, number one, it brings praise to the people of God. In other words, it causes a worship and a desire in our soul to praise the Lord and to testify of His goodness and of His grace. Listen, revival is not always an up thing. It's not always a high thing. It's not always something that has to do with running aisles and waving flags. And, and I'm not against that kind of revival. I enjoy getting in revival that's like that. But that's not always what revival brings. But I'll tell you something invariably that will always be there where the people of God are stirred up, always be there where revival happens, is God's people will be praising Him for the work that He's done. In fact, let me flip that thing around a little bit and say this. One of the things we can do to bring about revival in our life is to praise the Lord because the psalmist says elsewhere that he inhabiteth the praise of his people. Oftentimes we say, well, when God shows up, I'll praise him. I'll testify. I'll worship. Did it ever dawn on you if you go ahead and praise him and testify and worship, he might show up. And so we'd say this, that revival brings praise. Look at verse number two. He says this, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. I'd say this, that revival brings worship into the life of the believer. Notice how he uses that word. I will worship toward thy holy temple. It gives us a right perspective or focus in worship. He says, I will praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. It gives us right praise in the midst of our worship. Then he says this, thou hast magnified thy word above thy all thy name. It gives us a right priority in worship when revival takes place. When revival happens in the, in the people of God, it gives us a right adjusted attitude towards the topic of worship. Worship is not a self-centered thing because he doesn't say I will worship toward my desires or my place or my habitation. He says, Lord, I'm going to worship toward thy holy temple. The focus is not on him, it's on the Lord and what the Lord desires. He praises the Lord for the right reasons, thy loving kindness 
and for thy truth. His praise is not just centered around God's blessings, but on God's mercy in his life and on God's word in his life. And then he says, thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Revival happens where the word of God is given preeminence. Oftentimes, many movements today want to have revival uh, apart from the Word of God. Now, listen, there, there, you might as well try to whistle without blowing wind. Amen. It's not going to happen. We need the Word of God to have revival. It's the Word of God that brings revival. So it brings worship in the life of the believers. Look at verse 3. He says this, In the day when I cried, thou answeredest me and strengthenest me with strength in my soul. I'd say revival brings strength to the believers. We need strength in these days we live. Uh, you might say, well, preacher, do I really need revival? Yes, you need revival. We often think of people needing revival as only those that, that are spiritually infirmed in some way. People that have been living out in deep sin or people that have been discouraged or people that have strayed from the Lord, living waywardly. But i got news for you. Listen, every child of God needs revival. You know why? Because we all need strength. I don't care who you are or, how, or who you think you are, we all need strength. We all need revival in our life. You say, preacher, are these this uh, series of meetings, is that for me? Yes, it's for you. you. say, but preacher, I feel like I'm on pretty good standing with the Lord. Well, number one, I'd say most people that are don't think that way. Amen? But even beyond that, if you feel like you are, if you feel like you're keeping short accounts with God, you're, you're keeping all the appointments God expects of you, you're doing the things that God requires of you, man, praise God for that. If you are, then you should know better than anyone that the only way to maintain that testimony is through revival. We need strength. We need strength, not just for when we're in a low-down valley, but we need strength for the journey like Elijah did. So we all need strength. It brings strength in our life. Then look at what he says, verse 4. He says, All the kings of the earth shall praise thee, O Lord, when they hear the words of thy mouth. Isn't that interesting? How are all of these Gentile kings that don't know God, how are they going to hear the words of God's mouth? Well, I'll tell you how. When the people of God testify of those words into their ears. And he says in verse 5, Yea, they shall sing in the ways of the Lord. How are they going to learn the ways of the Lord? From the people of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. How are they going to know about the glory of the Lord if not the people of God testifying? And it brings me to this thought. Revival brings a testimony in a community. When God starts working in your heart and life, you won't have to make it a point to tell others. It's going to flow out of your life in front of others. When God starts changing things about the way you live, the way you behave, the way you act, your priorities, uh, your, your purpose, people will see God working in your life. Now, by the way, I would say this. If God's doing that, you're not going to want to stay quiet about it. But I would say that what revival does is it testifies to the world. You remember he says in verse number 1, Before the gods, little g, will I sing praise unto thee. Now, he's not talking as though these little gods, these uh, pagan gods, these figments of man's imagination are real entities. But what he's saying is this, I'm going to go to the places where the pagans are, and I'm going to tell them who the real God is, and I'm going to testify of the power of God. When God does something in our life, it brings a testimony that the world sees. Look at verse 6. He says this, Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly. Now that's interesting language. And if you're wondering exactly how that applies, look at the rest of the verse. He says, But the proud he knoweth afar off. In other words, we're talking about distance or intimacy in verse number 6. And it brings me to this. Revival brings communion. It brings a closeness between the Lord and His people. 
Now note that this closeness is not a closeness in the sense of positional as far as our standing because we've been placed in Christ if we've been born again. But you and I both know, let's just be honest, there's times we're closer in our fellowship with the Lord and times we are more distant in our fellowship with the Lord. And revival, when it comes to the life of the believer, will give them a yearning to be close to God. Like the psalmist when he panted after the water brooks, like the deer, like the heart, his soul thirsteth, desireth after God. And listen, that's the way it is when it comes to revival or really any of the things of the Lord. If you, you know how you find out the Lord is good? You taste and see the Lord is good. People that aren't interested in the things of God are people that are not uh, interacting with the things of God. If you are invested in interacting with the things of God, it will give you an appetite for the things of God. So much so that the more you drink of this book, the thirstier you'll get. The more you feast on this book, the hungrier you'll get. You'll uh, develop a closeness, a communion with the Lord. Look at verse 7. He says this, though I walk in the midst of trouble. Now let me just pause and say, I, I, I may not know it like he knows it, but I sure know what he's talking about. We are walking in the midst of trouble in our day. We are facing things today we never thought we'd face. I mean, we're, we're seeing things we never thought that we'd see. We're experiencing things we never thought we would experience. There are things that your parents and grandparents would have never thought would have happened that you have lived through in these days that we're in. We're walking in the midst of trouble. But notice how the psalmist says it. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. You know what revival brings? It brings peace of mind and peace of heart. Uh, David says, listen, things there's trouble on every side, but I'm not troubled inside. I'm trusting the Lord, and I know He's in control. Now, how did that happen? Well, because the Lord was ministering to his heart and life. I tell you, the greatest thing you can do for your heart and your spirit is to have revival. It'll do better than anything they could prescribe you, anything that they could suggest to you, anything that they could try to advise you about. To see revival in the heart of the believer is the source for peace in our life. And then look at verse 8. He says this, the Lord will perfect. Now, that doesn't mean to be morally stainless or spotless, but it means to be mature. And he says the Lord's going to bring to maturity. He's going to perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the works of thine own hand. How would we summarize what David says here? God's going to do a work in my life and He's going to bring that work to pass and He's not forsaken it or abandoned it. He's still working in my life. I would say it this way. Revival brings perfecting. It brings maturity. It brings growth in the life of the believer. You want to know a, a good acid test for whether revival is real or not? You see a lot of things called revival in our day. You see a lot of movements taking place. You see a lot of conferences and different things that, that, that uh, go on in, in our society. And, and people call them revival. You want to know if they're really revival or not? Are they maturing the people of God? Does it bring about in them a spiritual maturity that corresponds to the revealed truth of the Word of God? Listen, you can have a lot of noise, you can have a party, and everybody can go home completely unchanged. But when revival takes place, people do serious business with God. They confess sin, they cleanse sin out of their life, they deepen their maturity and their resolve and their commitment to God. It brings a lasting change in their life. So revival brings perfecting. These are some of the things that will, will occur when revival happens. We ask the question, what does revival bring? And Psalms 138 gives us an answer. But the question then I think that comes to my mind, and I hope everybody here is convinced now, preacher, I want revival. I desire revival. I need revival. And the next question has to be asked, 
Why then are we to believe that revival is possible? I'll tell you, there is a certain brand of fatalism that has taken root in much of the church today. It's rooted maybe sometimes intentionally deceptive, but often I think misguided but well-meaning eschatology, uh, belief uh, about end-time things that either is wrong in its, uh, in its teaching or sometimes is right in its teaching but wrong in its application that would lead us to believe that revival is not possible in our day. Can, can I tell you, listen, revival is as possible today as it's ever been. And I'm going to show you how I know that. Turn with me to Isaiah 57. One of the most fascinating verses in all the Word of God is found in Isaiah 57. In fact, you've heard me mention this, make reference of it many times from the pulpit, but we'll read it tonight. Uh, did you know that the word eternity is found only one time in the Bible? Now, the word eternal is found many times. The word everlasting is found many times. But there's only one time in the Bible that the word eternity is found. And it's in verse 15 of Isaiah 57. Notice it with me. Now, to give you a little background of what's taking place, remember that the children of Israel are living in apostasy at this time. They're living in rebellion against God. And though it is at a time in Israel's history where things are illustrious and, and seemingly stable and secure, Isaiah has been tasked with the job of telling them that God is going to bring judgment upon them because of their disobedience to the Word of God, because they're disregarding the Lord and living with sin in their life. And he even looks past their disobedience and looks to a time when they'll turn towards him and he gives them sort of an anchor of hope when that time comes for them to turn and to trust in the Lord, to seek revival. And listen to what he says in verse number 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. Now, this is given at a time when revival uh, is not even viewed as being something that is nascent or needful for the children of Israel. And it's meant to be applied at a time when revival doesn't even seem possible to the children of Israel. And God gives this verse to give them a, an anchor of hope for them to hang on to. Can I say this? Listen, the times when revival seems the least likely are the times when revival is the most needful. You can look around at this world at the apostasy of Christianity, particularly here in the West. You can look at the corruption that has wormed its way and corroded away the very fabric of society. And you can throw your hands up if you want and say, well, I guess God has fell off of His throne. But my Bible never says that. My Bible says that when it's the darkest of times, that's when the light of the Word of God shines the brightest. I would say revival is still even possible today. Why do I believe that? Well, let me give you a few reasons. One, because of his divinity, because of God's divinity. Look what he says in verse number 15, the very first phrase. Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. What a fascinating concept that is. He inhabits eternity. How would you say that? I mean, imagine if we were to use that terminology with a time-related word, but not the word eternity. What if I was to say, I'm the one that inhabiteth yesterday? What a strange phrase that would be. I'm the one that inhabits tomorrow. What would you take that to mean? Well, you could only rightly assume that what I mean is that I am dwelling in whatever time frame I've referenced. If I was to say I inhabit tomorrow, that would be to say that I will be in every moment of tomorrow. If I was to say I current present tense inhabit yesterday, that's to say I'm still presently living in the reality of yesterday. When he says I inhabit eternity, what he means to say, well, I shouldn't say it that way. He said what he means to say. 
the way that we could should mean to understand it, let me say it that way, uh, is to understand that God is present inside of every moment of time. I heard it described once this way, that everything at every moment, at every place, is in the immediate presence of God. God doesn't reckon time the way you and I reckon time. We dwell inside of this construct known as time, this moving continuum. Uh, the way I've described it for to folks is if you had a big map up on the wall and you zoomed in until all you saw was one particular road, and then you began to follow that road along a path. And as you move, you are moving in a different geographical location. God's not that way. He sees the whole map as it is. He's in every moment as presently as we are in this moment. Now that then begs this question, why then would our times be anything in regard to God's ability to give revival? Do you understand that the great revivals of human history that we point back to, that we long for and say, oh, if that could just happen again, it's not over as far as God's concerned. He's as present in that moment as he is in this moment. If we were to look towards revivals that we're praying for, you understand that God is as present in those moments as He is in this moment. I'm saying that when we use language like, well, in days past, we're talking in language that God is bigger than. He doesn't regard things in that way. Uh, he doesn't interact with things in that way. And He tells the people of Israel, listen, you may be moving on this continuum and things may be shifting and changing, but I'm as present in every moment, including those moments and the moments of the past as I am now. That's the reason He could say that He is that I am. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He was saying, I'm as present in that moment as I am in the moment that you are in. I would say simply this, because He is God and because of who He is, it is foolish to say revival's not possible because He doesn't change and He's still as present in this moment and in every moment as He was in those moments. It's just not a, a factor to God. Of course He can still give revival. He's the same God. Not only that, I believe it's possible because of His divinity, but also because of His desire. He says this, whose name is holy. God's very essence, and listen, God's primary characteristic is not that of love or of mercy, it is that of holiness. If we're to understand who God is, we must first understand what holiness is. We can only understand what love is in light of His holiness. What's the expression of God's love? God commended His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you're to understand Calvary, you have to understand the holiness of God. Because why would God send His Son to die on the cross of Calvary if He was not a holy God? He could have just overlooked sin. He could have disregarded it. He could have tolerated it. But He could not because He is a holy God. And it was an expression of His love to allow His Son to become sin for us because He is holy. You understand, He hates sin more than we ever could hate sin. And for Him to allow His Son to become our sin, that great act of love can only be understood in light of His holiness. Now, if God's a holy God, if holiness is His primary characteristic, then doesn't it suggest to us that His desire for His people is that they be a holy people? And I would say this, we can't be a holy people apart from the reviving work of the Holy Spirit in our life. I think because of His desire. Then He says this, I dwell in the high and holy place with Him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. I would say because of His dwelling place, I believe revival is possible. Notice that He does not lower Himself, rather He elevates those that approach Him in humility and in contrition. Uh, revival is not God trying to meet us in the middle. Revival is God scooping us up out of where we are and elevating us to heavenly places. 
It's not God denigrating His own holiness or besmirching it or disregarding it so that He can have common communion with us. Rather, revival is God elevating, transcending our uh, our condition and, and bringing us to a place of privilege and of holiness that we might have fellowship with Him. He says this, I'm in a holy place, I'm in a high place, I'm in a lofty place. And if you want to get to that place, the way to get there is through contrition and through humility. In other words, God says this, there's room for you. There's room for you. I believe revival is possible because God honors those that are humble and contrite. And that brings me to the next point because of his declaration. What does he say? To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Are you ready to dive deep, I mean head first into the deep end of the theological pool? You want to know why revival is possible? You ready? Get ready to get dazzled. Because he said so. Because he said so. I mean, we shouldn't need nothing else if we're people of the book. Because he said so. He said, that's what I desire to do. I want to revive the spirit of the humble. I want to revive the heart of the contrite. And just for God to have said it is enough for us to believe. So why is revival possible? Because of his divinity and desire, his dwelling place. Because he said so. Because of his declaration. Now somebody's going to say, now wait a minute, preacher. I know that was all true at one time, but don't you? haven't you read the book of Revelation? Don't you know we're led to sin now and God can't do nothing? Hey, listen, I, I, I am a premillennial, pre-tribulation rapturous. I believe that we are living in led to sin days, led to sin times. And if you don't believe it, just go to church, any church. And you'll see Laodicean Christianity. But nowhere in my Bible do I see, well, we're living in the end times. Might as well just hang it up. Just try to knuckle down and hunker down and wait it out till you hear a trumpet. But don't expect God to do nothing. I don't find that anywhere in my Bible. My Bible tells me to occupy till he comes. And that's not occupy as in, as in stagnate. That's not occupy as in just, just twiddle your thumbs. That's occupy like a military unit does. Uh, keep your post. Hold your purpose. Keep your calling. Keep fighting. Don't give up till he comes back. And so if we're to occupy till he comes, somebody's going to say, Preacher, don't you know the days we're living in? No, but I do know this. Listen to what Habakkuk 3 2 says. You remember Habakkuk has a broken heart to see God revive his people. And he says this, O Lord, I've heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, that language is not abstract and it's not elastic. It is very descript, specific language. Did you know that there's 350 times in the Bible that the word midst is used? But only on two occasions, both of them in this verse, is the word midst used, not regarding a geological or geographical location, but rather regarding the concept of time. Every other time it's used, it's always in the midst of this place or in the midst of these people. But here, Habakkuk speaks about being in the midst of the years, in the midst of time. Uh, Habakkuk, as he stands, he stands about equal distance from the giving of the law and from the cross of Calvary. He understands that he is in this intermediary period between when God is working in the midst of his people. And he prays and he says, God... I know it's not time for revival yet, but I sure wish you'd give us revival. I'd say it this way. You say, preacher, is it a good time for revival? God don't care what time it is. He's ready to give revival. Say, but preacher, don't you know the wrath of God is on our nation? Probably. Yes, definitely, surely. You've been to the gas station? Yes. But I'm praying that in wrath he'd remember mercy. Preacher, don't you know the years we're living in? Yeah, but I'm praying he'd revive his work in the midst of the years. I'm praying that in the midst of everything. Preacher, don't you know who the president is? Yeah, but I know who God is. 
Preacher, don't you know, don't you know what our government's like? Yeah, but I know what our, our, our king is like. And I know that in the midst of all of it, he can still give revival. Now you say, Preacher, I, I'm on board. I'm ready. I hope you're saying that. I hope you're saying, Preacher, I'm signed up. So what's it going to take? I want to answer one final question now. What is needed for revival? What do you and I need in our life? What's going to have to happen for revival to take place? Turn to the book of Ezra with me. Ezra chapter number 9. I want to read one verse and I want to exhort you a little bit from it. We'll be done tonight. Ezra chapter number 9. Now remember, uh, if we're following a timeline, Isaiah comes after Psalms and Ezra comes after Isaiah. And he's asking God to do a work in Israel. Ezra has been tasked to go back and rebuild the temple. And he is surveying and sort of recollecting upon what God has done in bringing them to this place, allowing them to restart the work of building the temple and and giving them this glimmer of hope that God would do something in the nation. And he says this in verse 7, Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day, and for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to a spoil, and to confusion of face as it is this day. Boy, it sounds a lot like our nation, doesn't it? But he says, and now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. Can I summarize what Ezra's saying there? He's saying, hey, uh, look up and pay attention. God's doing something. That's what he's saying. God's doing something. God has brought us to this place. It's not by accident. God's given us this opportunity. Let's seize this opportunity and see God do something in our nation. And he lists a few things that cause him to think that. These are things that are needed. And he's looking around saying, much like we did tonight, we have everything we need to have revival. What does he see that is needful? I would say, number one, that room is needed. Look what he says. And now for a little space, verse 8, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God. He says, God's given us this little window of time where he has, has pulled the enemy off of us and he has given us some breathing room and we have this opportunity in front of us let us not waste, but let us use it for the glory of God. So, preacher, what's needed for revival to happen? Well, as long as we're still breathing, we've still got a little bit of room to have revival. I'll tell you, the first thing that's needed is, is, is time, the opportunity, this moment that we're living in to see God do something. Now, I don't say that to say, let us make time. You've heard me say this before. You can't make time. Uh, you, can, you can't find time. You've got to take time. Amen? Uh, you can search for time, but you're going to find the same 24 hours as anybody else. You can try to make time, uh, but you ain't going to come up with any more than 24 hours in a day. So you're going to have to take time from other things to see God do something in your life. So I'm not going to say we need to make time. and I'm not going to say we need to find time. But we better take the time over this next week. Because we have this opportunity. The man of God will be here. People will be singing. People will be ready to preach. People will be ready to pray. People will be ready to serve. We're going to be here in this moment. Don't let it pass by. Because it's the fundamental thing that's needful for revival to happen. The people of God need to take the, the, the space. They need to have the room to have revival. I would say room is needed. Number two, a remnant is needed. He says to leave us a remnant to escape. Ezra recognizes that this is not something that he can do in and of himself. 
one of the things I hear preachers talk about all the time, and I, I, I'm not being critical. I don't want to minimize this, this aspect. There's a truth here. But they'll talk about how one person began to pray for revival and revival happened. They'll talk about the little girl that prayed for years for the Welsh revival that took place at the turn of the 1900s and how she prayed for, for 30 years and prayed and begged God. And one day God sent the Welshman by and God created a revival in that place. And listen, praise the Lord for that. If you need that to get you to pray, I'll tell you that. Amen? You just tell me what you need for me to pump you up and get you to do something for God. I'll tell you whatever it is. Amen? But can I tell you what's more biblical? Biblical takes place, biblical revival takes place, uh, not at the efforts of just one, but at the efforts of the collective of God's people seeking the Lord. What you'll find more often in the Word of God, rather than one, uh, you know, lone gunslinger of prayer rolling into town and stirring things up, is you'll find when the people of God get a broken heart to see God do something in that place, and they as a remnant begin to seek God, and ask God to work in their in their church and in their life. Now somebody's going to say, "But preacher, don't you know all those people in the world?" I'm talking about all the people in the world. Hey, it didn't it didn't even take all of God's people, but it did take some. And I'll tell you what's going to be needful for revival to happen is God's people are going to have to start praying and seeking it in their life. A remnant is needed. Then I would say this. This is interesting language. He says, "And to give us a nail in His holy place." That's that's strange language. What is Ezra talking about? Well, he's talking about a tent peg. And he's saying, you know, God's brought us back to this land. And he has once again given us a home in this place. And we don't have much, but we got this tent peg and we drove in. God has showed us that he has a place for us here where we can meet with him and get help from him. Uh, Isaiah would talk about this same nail, but he would talk about it in a figurative way. He would talk about a man by the name of Eliakim, a, a high priest, and, and how that this man Eliakim was a type of the Lord Jesus. He said this in Isaiah 22, It shall come to pass, verse 20, in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Now, you ought to know by now we ain't just talking about Eliakim. Uh, you ought to know by now we're talking about somebody beyond Eliakim. We're talking about that one who later on took them keys and gave them to Peter, but he was the one that had the keys of hell and of death. It's talking about the Lord Jesus. And he says this, I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. Now let me just real quick, because I ain't got much time. I told you it's going to be a short sermon, and we're exactly 48 seconds away from me being a liar. So you're going to have to listen quick. The, the Israelites say, hey, listen, we got this nail in this place. we got this place we can talk to God and we can hear from God. He's let us lay the foundation of this temple. Isaiah says there's coming a day when that nail that's driven ain't going to be a, a physical place, but rather it's going to be a divine person. Can I tell you, we're living in that day where the one that we go to is not a physical place, but is a high priest seated in heavenly places, and we are seated together in heaven with him. And how do we avail ourselves of his help? I'll tell you how. How uh, listen, Seeing that we have this great high priest and the apostle of our profession, let us come boldly, the Hebrews writer said, under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have the resource of prayer where we can go to the Lord and ask for his help. What's needed for revival? Prayer is needed. Prayer is needed. The resource of prayer. Then he says this, that our God may lighten our eyes. A revelation is needed. Now, I want to be very clear when I say a revelation. I don't mean some new thing that ain't found in your Bible. But what I mean is God has to lift the scales of our own pride 
and our own self-opinion and our own self-absorption and show us who we are for ourselves. He, he says, I'm praying God would open our eyes to some things. Part of revival and, and what is needed for revival is for us to get real honest with God. God will not give revival to a liar or a hypocrite. We have to get honest with God. If you won't be honest with God, just go ahead and nail it down. You're not going to have revival. To have revival, you have to let God tell you the truth and you have to be willing to hear it. A revelation is needed. You know what that then brings is a revival. He says, and give us a little reviving in our bondage. In other words, revival can happen in our life. Revival, God desires it. Everything's there for it. But it's got to start in us. And we've got to pursue it. And we've got to deliberately seek for God to do something in our life. You say, preacher, if we all do this, are we going to have some big blowout meeting? 40 people saved and everybody running the aisle? I don't know if we will or not. If God wants us to have that, we'll have that. But here's what I want out of this next week. I want what God wants. Whatever that is for your life and for my life. I want God to have complete, total liberty. I don't want any fences in our hearts over this next week. I challenge you to have the faith and the courage to take every fence down in your heart and say to God, God, every bit of me is yours. I'm not going to have any golden calves and sacred cows in my life. I'm not going to have anything that I put off limits. God, I will let you speak to me about anything that you desire to speak to me about. And God, whatever you desire to do in my life, that's what I desire. Let's bow together. And I want to do this a little different tonight. Anybody that'd be willing. I know some folks may not feel comfortable doing it. And that's fine. I, the, the, nobody's going to think anything about you. But I want to invite you, if you'd be willing, to meet us in this altar and to ask God to do something in our church over this next week. And I, I mean that when I say, if you, if you don't feel led to, if you don't feel like you need to, nobody's going, nobody's going to think anything. We're all going to be praying and have our heads bowed anyway. So you're, you don't have to feel like you have to. But if you feel liberty to, I want you to do it. I want you to meet us in this altar. And I want you to ask God to do a work in our church, in our church body, in our church life. Ask God to do something in our midst. Larry Solomon, would you lead us in prayer and ask God to do something in our church? And when Larry's done, this will dismiss us. We'll say a word and be done. But Brother Larry, would you lead us in prayer right now?